The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is the episode for the 31st of October, 2013, in which we discuss going into business for yourself. So, Jeff, have you ever thought about uh, shucking the corporate life and venturing off on your own? Well, not only did I think about it, I did it. Oh, really? How long ago was that? Back in 1994, I uh, was a director of operations at a machine shop and said, I think I can go out on my own and do engineering design. And so, uh, without a client to my name, without a clue of what I was getting into, <laughs> I headed out and started my own business. Nice. And uh, how how'd that go? Is it successful? Uh, I, it eventually paid the bills, but because I really didn't plan it out very well, I didn't take a salary for the first 18 months. And uh, so there were some pretty lean days trying to get that sucker up and going. Oh, I can imagine. What made you finally uh, decide to leave that life, if you have? Um, I was never particularly good at uh, the politics, and, and so I started my first job was with uh, General Motors, a big corporation, and I went to a smaller corporation, I went to yet a smaller corporation, and I eventually ended up at a machine shop of about 100 and some employees, and even that uh, seemed too much for me, so I decided that if, if I was my own boss, I could fix all the world's problems. <laughs> Ambitious. Yeah, I didn't fix anybody's problems, but uh, but I was off on my own nonetheless. <laughs> uh, are, you still, are you still planning on staying off on your own, or uh, are you going to return to the corporate life? Well, now that I've, I've uh, finished up with getting my doctorate so I can go back and teach, I'm, I'm right now hoping to find a teaching position, so we'll, we'll see what the future brings. All right. Yeah, I've, I've given it some thought on uh, some of the rougher days at work, but knowing myself, it, it really wouldn't work too well. If I could, I don't think I'd make it make it happen. <laughs> if I had a way to earn a living wage watching Seinfeld reruns, I'd put my shingle out tomorrow morning. But <laughs> <laughs> till that day comes, <laughs> I'll be I'll be stuck in the corporate life. Uh, but fortunately, I'm not all engineers, and uh, the stats that MIT puts out are any indication of the field as a whole, uh, 20% or so of the graduates of uh, their graduates wind up as a consultant of some sort, which brings us to our guest tonight, um, an engineer of many talents, uh, Sophie Kravitz. And Sophie, Sophie used to be a sales engineer at a company called Solid State Cooling Devices before she went into business herself almost exactly a year ago today. Um, besides consulting, Sophie's an avid DIYer, and you can find her every year at the Maker Fair in New York City, as well as out in the desert at Burning Man. She was just recently featured actually on Hackaday for her Heartbeat Boombox. And on top of all that, she also documents her life as a consultant on her website, supergreendot.com. And before that, the two of us actually used to contribute to the engineerblogs.org together. So Sophie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And Good again, Carmen, it's really, it's nice to meet you in person or on the phone. Yeah. Yes, the magic of VoIP. <laughs> One of these days I'll get up to the New York Maker Fair and we can actually uh, go face to face. I know, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, or this the Raleigh Maker a, Fair. Yes, that's a good time. You can meet some of the other guys from Twitter too. Right. So before we get too far away from that, let me ask about engineering blogs because I, I really enjoyed reading that you know, the perspective of engineers, but uh, it just sort of petered out. Was it was it difficult to keep coming up with stories for that, uh, that site? It wasn't. <laughs> I think we all got busy at the same time. Yes. <laughs> um, we all just kind of moved on to other projects, and it seemed that we kept putting off the engineer blogs writing as opposed to making it a priority. Yeah, and for myself, I felt like, my last two posts, they just, they weren't very strong. And I didn't feel like, you know, putting the effort in if I wasn't going to be able to do something that was really good. Right. And I think we all felt that way. Yeah, yeah, there definitely was that general vibe going around in some of the emails. Yeah. But I agree, it was a great blog. It was, it was a lot of fun to read and write for. Yeah, it was it was neat. Although I guess uh, uh, each of you do have your own blog, so now you can you can write for your for your own purpose now. 
This is true. This is true. Yeah. And, and so, Sophie, what you, we might as well jump into that. What is your blog these days? I have two blogs. I have the I have the supergreen.com and that blog is about entrepreneurship and I interview people who have gone out on their own and ask them how they've managed to do that. I have to say I've, I've lost track of that blog, but I intend to get back to it. I, I love doing that blog. I love talking to other entrepreneurs and people who have kicked their day job habit. <laughs> it's really interesting and, and I get a lot of really great feedback from from readers. Cool. Unfortunately, I got busy with work and haven't contributed much to it. And I have an, another blog on mix-engineering.com. That's my personal project website. Um, that blog is just about projects and conferences that I'd attend and frustrations with general design work and just your general engineering blog. Right. Yeah, I checked out some of your projects on there as I was preparing for uh, the show, and you got some pretty cool stuff. I like that uh, heartbeat room you did for Maker Fair and Burning Man. Thanks. You're welcome. The Heartbeat Dome is the official name on it. Yeah. yeah so it was, uh, seemed to have a couple of different projects using um, heartbeats um, and biofeedback. What, uh, what got you turned on to stuff like that? I'm mostly thinking about user interfaces and mm -hmm. what what makes a really good user interface is if someone can walk up to a project or a dishwasher or touchscreen and just know what to do. I used to design control systems, and I suppose I will again in my life. Um, <laughs> a subject, I mean, I thought it was fascinating to design, you know, as long as I was doing the PLC part of it, I did the touchscreen too, and there are all these different ways you can put a bunch of buttons together to make it easy for the user or more difficult for the user. I mean, who hasn't had a user interface that's just not intuitive? So, <laughs> Any of the PCB software I've ever used? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, what is up with that? <laughs> oh, that's a whole show in itself. <laughs> don't get me started. So um, the oximeter sensor, uh, the one that I used, I tried out quite a few, just starts up. I mean, you can't do anything else with it. People pick it up and they click it a couple times and then they're just naturally put their finger in it and then it performs. And it's it's actually it's pretty cool to see a user interface that's that easy. Yeah, kinda kinda foolproof in its design. Yeah. I, I used to work for a company as an engineer and I, we worked on coming up with a new design for a set of chillers. And that was the goal always was how do we make something where people just know to set and forget. And maybe a go button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, simple. Simple is definitely better in some cases. But then, of course, you're like, where do you hide the emo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need all those backdoor features for uh, the field guys who have to service it. Right. And how much of that ended up being technical considerations, and how much did you get into uh, UI design? Well. Or is it all combined? You can't really separate them out anyway. I, I think. Um, as we were talking about before the show, in a larger company, you would have people who are UI designers. I, I mm. never worked anywhere that had that title. So as long as I was the electrical engineer, I was going to make the UI design as well. So you got to be the uh, the design guru as well. I, yes. I mean, these companies are, in a way, sort of short-staffed. So if you're going to just do more, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it was good preparation for going out on your own if you had to jump between so many different jobs. I like that. It keeps things interesting. Yes. It's never a slow day at work. <laughs> That's true. One minute you're invoicing, one minute you're <laughs> designing. A you had to invoice at the other company too? At your, your no, corporate no, job? Oh, okay. No, no. Talking about going off on your own. I yeah. get you. So what made you finally decide to leave the uh, the corporate life and hang up your own shingle there? I used to come home on Fridays and be very upset. I would I was like, my whole life was just going away. And I was working for other people on projects I didn't feel very emotionally attached to. Mm -hmm. Or they weren't challenging. I mean, they would be challenging until I would learn how to do it. And then, of course, for... 
yeah, for a company to be profitable, they need to keep the people who know how to do something on that same project. Mm-hmm. So and, it just become a routine then. And I get bored like very easily. I mean, I think many engineers get bored very easily. And my tolerance level for that wasn't, is not very high. So I, I hear about people leaving because they've got like a great idea and I've got to go do this idea because I'm positively pulled towards, you know, the future. But I also hear the stories of an awful lot of people that go, it's not so much that I'm jumping out towards something positive as though the situation I'm in, I just can't deal with that any longer. It's, it's toxic to what I want to do and I've got to leave that. And I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I'm going to, whatever it is, I'm going to give it a try. Yeah, it was definitely more like that. I had a, a lot of jobs since I, I graduated in 2006, although I worked um, in a bunch of companies before that. Mm-hmm. So I would have a new job every year or two. Um, I'd design something and then move on. And always on good terms, like some of these people are hiring me now as a consultant or a contractor. But I was a serial employee, I guess, or a freelancer with benefits. and then I just was there was a a few events where I wanted to travel and a boss didn't want to let me you know just this control thing yeah and I thought it might just be better if I was um, also a serial freelancer and pay for my own benefits So a year in, do you think it's paying off? Yeah, it's great. Good. I'm about to run out of work for the first time all year. I've been, it's been a really busy year. Um, so I'm definitely worried. <laughs> <laughs> but. And that's one of the problems of being a, uh, a one person show is that you go out and just every, everybody wants your time right away. But you've got to you've got to sell yourself, go get the work, and then you've got to do the work, and then you've got to bill for the work, and uh, it's it's a real juggling act to keep that all up in the air. Yes, and then you've actually got to collect. Yes, you have to collect too. <laughs> right, that hasn't that hasn't been an issue. Um, I'm pretty good about billing frequently, and I guess I just wouldn't go back to work if I didn't get paid. So, Sophie, when you uh, made the leap, I've always thought about if I did this the financial resources I'd have to have on hand in order to make sure I paid the mortgage or whatever. Uh, is, is that something that you put a lot of time and resources into like securing yourself or you just make the jump? I actually made the jump first to being a sales engineer mm-hmm. and that, um, being in sales is they let me work three days a week. So I had a very minimal income coming in. In fact, not even quite what I had gotten laid off from my full-time engineering job. And I could have gone back to full-time engineering, but I wanted to work part-time. And no one will hire you as a part-time engineer. Or I haven't found anyone who will hire me as a part-time engineer. It's rare. It it is, right? So I went into sales engineering, which is much less technical and not as interesting. But it, it actually, sales pays quite well. In fact, maybe oh, yes. better than technical jobs. So that was how I made the leap initially. So I did that for two years, and then I jumped after that. Because I, I felt I had a little bit of traction. In those two years, I'd done a few freelance jobs, and I just felt like, well, I'm going to probably keep getting more freelance jobs. And before you made this leap, I can't remember, were you doing Super Green Dot before you did this? So you had people you could talk to about what the event was going to be like? Or did you do that after you'd made the leap? I did it after I had jumped to be a sales engineer. Okay. And that, that was a weird time for me. I mean, I was giving up being, you know, I mean, I love engineering. And I, it was weird to just suddenly be on this somewhat non-technical side. A little bit tragic, actually. I was slightly heartbroken all the time. But I was happy <laughs> that I had my time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's one of the, the big things I don't want to give up is being technical all the time. Yeah, there's there's something really great about, you know, being technical and nobody, you know, only the technical people know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of what you went, you know, to school for and 
it's it's what you picture an engineer to be in your head. And I I mean, I I know many engineers and myself included, we spend other time besides at our jobs researching and, you know, even just as like a hobby, you're always learning, you're putting in a significant amount of time towards that career. Definitely. It's it's more of a lifestyle, really. (laughs) Yes, I would agree. And, And Sophie, do you, when you go out on your own, and you do have to do the billing and the sales and the phone calls and all that stuff. Do you? It's very challenging. I mean, I, I always enjoyed having the variety of things to do, but it does pull away from your technical time. Uh, do you mind that at all? Not at all. I, I, I like I like the sales stuff. I love talking to people. Um, the billing, I have a routine. And I, I think really if someone just didn't pay me on time, I would stop working for them. And that would be the end of it. I'm not, I don't really like to have drama or anything. So I would just be like, okay, we're done. You've never waited in the parking lot with a baseball bat asking for money? No, <laughs> probably not. Money? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I might withhold the work. or mm-hmm. I mean, I would probably withhold the work. Well, but it's sometimes difficult when you're dealing with a, at least I, I dealt with times with larger corporations and that it's that have terms like, you know, net 30 or net 60. Uh, and they would try to push you out 90 or 100, even 120 days sometimes. And so they're going, give me the work now and I'm going to pay you then. And it's hard to get, you know, get a, uh, a big purchasing organization to say, no, I'm a small, you know, I'm a small right. company. You have to get, you have to give me something now. I, I, yes, I, I agree. This hasn't, it hasn't happened to me in terms of working for a big corporation. I did do a government job and it took me months to get paid. Yeah. And in fact, if they want <laughs> something again, I feel like there may be a $1,000 or $8,000 idiot charge attached for all the time I spent. You know, I mean, mm. I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not kidding. In a way, it's like not worth dealing with that. Not, I mean, I, if they came back, I would have to seriously consider if I would even want to do another job and chase down and spend that much time chasing down money. Yeah, there's certainly an emotional charge that uh, gets factored into some of the quotes that go out after you've dealt with someone. Right. And and as someone recently for a current, uh, I'm using the words consulting, contracting, and freelancing and interchangeably, but we should talk about what those things mean. Um, one of my current gigs, someone asked me to do something for free for, it was like about two weeks of work. Um I just explained to them that if I did that, I would be then out of business and then they would never be able to see me again. (laughs) (laughs) And that would just be the end of all the support and, you know, the work that we had done together. Yeah. And so that seemed to resonate. And a a charge was agreed on for this thing that they wanted. Right. But yeah, I I think people don't, um, when they, they hire contractors they they don't necessarily think about what that means well do, do you want to get into what the difference is between contract work and consulting work yeah yeah and it'd be interesting to hear what you guys think of those terms um, i use freelancer because everybody knows what that means there's i mean there's nobody that doesn't understand that that means you don't have a full-time job Mm-hmm. It's and typically just, more associated with journalism though, than engineering, or is that just how I've heard it? Um, I, I don't know, because I don't know any other engineers who don't work full-time somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so basically, if, if you're a freelancer, I guess you could be a consultant or a contractor, and, and either one would be a freelancer because you're not a full-time employee. You don't have company benefits, you don't have any kind of pension, uh, you don't have a parking space, there's you are not associated with the company on a full-time basis. Right. Now, one difference in your scenario, I think that I'm, I'm just guessing uh, that a lot of other engineers might experience is uh, sometimes people end up working through big consulting firms or uh, like job shops mm-hmm. where, you know, you are looking for work and they say, hey, I've got a contract at, you know, Lockheed Martin for three months worth of work. You know, and all of your benefits go through that job shop house or that uh, resource firm, mm-hmm. you know, and 
Oh, so what you're talking about is significantly different. It's basically you are the resource for it. Right. Although it could happen. Um, there's, there's a company called Oxford International. It's the, it's the only company that I'm seriously dealing with. They, they only deal with contract jobs and they have some, some jobs that are really interesting to me, but so far it hasn't, I haven't been around when they're ready or they have something that's in like Tennessee or, you know, somewhere that's not close to me. Mm -hmm. But I yeah. typically, Oh, sorry. Oh, I, I mean, I would do that. I would work with them. I hope to work with them at some point. Yeah. Are these typically longer term jobs or are they, could they be something like, Oh, this is three or four days worth of work as opposed to three or four months. They don't have anything that's, I haven't seen anything that's three to four days unless mm -hmm. it's on Craigslist. <laughs> and, and you guys are laughing, but I mean, when I first went into the sales engineer thing, that was somewhere I was looking at at a possibility for where I could get work. Um, I did talk to and meet a, quite a few, maybe five different people who I suppose could be potential clients. Two of them I'm still in touch with. I never did any work for any of these people because what, it, it just wasn't a good match. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of people on Craigslist who want engineers to do projects for $25. <laughs> An hour or total? Total. <laughs> that is, that is well, not a lot of money. Yard you have that. to understand, like, most people, they go to the store and they buy a mouse for, like, you know, a mouse, a computer mouse mm -hmm. for whatever, $29, and it does all this stuff. Like a $29 mouse does a ton of stuff. And then they yeah. want you to make a custom mouse and they want to know why does it cost whatever. I mean, whatever it's going to cost, 2900 29000 whatever it is. They want to know why isn't it $29? <laughs> but you can understand why that, they think that because oh, most yeah. people are not thinking about supply chain or manufacturing or you know, manufacturing and quantities. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the first mouse costs $29 million or whatever, right. but the next hundred thousand of them, they can be sold for next to nothing. Right. But there's a lot of people also with, and, and you guys probably hear this a lot too. Like just, there's always people who have myself included who have the next best thing idea. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. I, I'm pitched constantly. Oh, could you just build this thing for me? <laughs> should take should take you no more than a week, two tops. Well, and that's the thing. It's always after they say, you, "Could you build this thing for me?" It shouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I can't okay, do you're it. You're like a nurse or something. How would you even know? <laughs> <laughs> that's or even see the better is the follow up. Uh, I'll give you ten percent. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or here's an here's an idea, and if you use it, you have to give me twenty percent. <laughs> Never mind that if you did, it would significantly change from their, you know, two minute elevator description of <laughs> yeah. what this thing is supposed to do to what it actually does. Exactly. So, Sophie, have you been uh, approached with any perpetual motion machine ideas? As a matter of fact, <laughs> um, yes. Oh. I grew up with a physicist, though, so un unlikely that. Do you, do you just say entropy and hang up the phone? No, I mean, it's, I'd like to hear what people have to say. I also think it's important for people to be able to ideate. Like if I'm, I don't know, if I have nothing going on and it's someone that I know or we're like out at dinner or at a party or something, it's fun to talk about stuff. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I was thinking about the random solicitation. I, actually, <laughs> I don't get any random solicitations at all. Uh, like nothing. My, my phone number isn't public, and I think even if it was, I mean, I'm sure it is somewhere online, but even if it was public, I don't think anyone would just call me to randomly. I, I want to jump back to the contract versus consultant bit. We kind of touched on it. And yeah. Sometimes there are contract jobs where a firm, an intermediate firm, will hire out for a, you know, a regular engineering firm. And sometimes I know people get hired on there, and usually it's a, you know, a two or three year it can be a two or three year mm -hmm. trial, and if if the big company likes you, they'll hire you on full time. Otherwise, they sort of use this middle company to, you know, test out employees. Yeah. 
But for someone like yourself, Sophie, who's a, you know, a one person shop, how do you make the distinction between contract work and consulting work? I think to me it's, it's semantics because I charge an hourly for myself and most of my jobs. I mean, I've only been really doing this for a full year or Mm -hmm. and part-time for the two years before. So there's a limited amount of clients and they're all for a project. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that would be called consulting. Yeah. I, I I see contract work as being somebody is saying, come in and we're going to pay you on a hourly basis and we are going to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. And consulting is, we may be going to pay you on an hourly basis or on a per-project basis, one or the other, but we're going to tell you what the problem is and you decide what you want to do. So I'm somewhere in between. Okay. I, I'm given a project and then not, I mean, I, I create my own direction. I, I decide what to do. Okay, and you've you've been able so far to avoid fixed-cost bids? Just hourly, yeah. Okay. I don't do um, per-project basis because I've lost money every single time I've tried to do that. Yes, that's why big businesses like to get you to do fixed-cost bids. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I just don't do it. Right. <laughs> Sounds like a good strategy. And I had a lot of uh, fixed-cost bids jobs, and like you, I was always struggling to make ends meet. I, I ended up trying to, as best I could to, to divvy those projects up into small segments. So we would do a investigation first for a couple of weeks, and then we'd do a design phase, and then we'd do a build phase. You know, we'd, mm-hmm. we'd divvy those things up so I didn't have one huge contract that uh, was carrying everything. Soon-to-be project, I've asked them to pay me for just a week as like to do some research and give them some feasibility. Mm-hmm. Just to tell them what it's going to take to make this thing. Right. Do you always roll the feasibility in with your hourly rate, or you know, for certain clients, would you say like, let me get back to you in like two or three days, and you know, you do some initial research, but you don't maybe charge them for it, or do you charge for everything? Um, I didn't charge already for a couple of days, and now they're mm-hmm. asking for more. So I asked them to pay me for a week, <laughs> and I gotcha. would give them a full, you know, a full fledged thing. So yeah, no, I don't really, I don't nickel and dime people at all. I, I'm actually pretty lax unless I don't get paid. Then I'm not lax at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then all um, of a sudden every, every uh, ounce of pen ink and, yeah. you know, eraser is, is coming into play. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't sit with the stopwatch every time I have a phone call with a customer. I mean, you know, I will sometimes tell, like I have an ongoing thing that's going to come to an end and I've told them it's about five hours a week of customer support. And so, I mean, I don't nickel and dime that at all. I just pretty much put in five hours every week for that. Mm-hmm. Now, do do you typically work on site at the customer's facility, or would you work out of your home or lab? Both. Oh, okay. I, I have a lab, as such as it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's an upstairs bedroom at my house, but I mean, it's got a lot of tools and it, it is a lab. It's more um, of a lab than I have. And I also would go to a customer site. I like to go to a customer site. I mean, get interact with other people. And yeah, do you, do you find you miss the interaction with uh, you know people on a day to day basis? And since you're off on your own, um, I was actually thinking to write a post about this. I like to be alone when I need to concentrate. So in that sense, no. But having other engineers to bounce things off of is, it, it's hard. I use the Toymakers IRC. I hang out in there a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I don't it's know a, if you guys know that. It's an IRC. I've, I've been there a few times, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good group of guys, mm-hmm. good group of people, gals, everybody. Yeah. And a lot of really knowledgeable and talented and, you know, people who are in there so on all kinds of things i mean the other day we were looking at how long it took for a certain page on my website to load up i was so impressed i'm like wow you guys can just look and see and time it (laughs) (laughs) incredulous you know yeah but yeah i mean i think if you go out on your own it's really 
important to stay in touch with other people in your field because otherwise you could get on a project. I mean, I've, I've worked with people who have been on a project for a long time, especially people who write software. And you're writing this one kind of software for, you know, whatever, a couple of years. Everything changes. You've got no interaction with other people and then you're out. All that time and effort. Yeah. And your two-year consulting gig results in no work again in the future. Which is pretty much puts you under then at that point. Yeah. Or you have to go get a full-time job. That too. Which we, as engineers, <laughs> we are pretty lucky that full-time engineering jobs are, you know, there's, there's plentiful. Relatively, yeah. Relatively, compared to other fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when you're working at home, you know, in your upstairs tool shed slash lab, <laughs> uh, or, you know, when you wake up in the morning, how do you how do you keep yourself motivated to keep on working? I know if I had to sit here at the desk I'm recording this podcast on, I would be mindlessly surfing the internet and maybe put in an hour's worth of work all day, because then you get caught up doing housework or running errands. I'm usually really into my projects mm -hmm. so it it isn't that hard at all i mean sometimes i'll be like wow it's 11 o'clock and all i've done is be on twitter all morning and then it's like okay <laughs> gotta gotta work but the night be i mean okay i'm really showing myself as a uh anal new yorker here but before <laughs> i go to bed i usually write the to-do list so that in the morning i'm not like wondering what i'm going to be doing no, that's, yeah. that's a pretty smart idea. You got to get yourself over that hump of pajamas to actually working. <laughs> exactly. And and I usually, I mean, I guess I can't say I always like dress for work for like, but, I mean, I, I know people who do that. They'll like actually put on office casual clothes before they sit in front of their computer at their house. But I'll usually go for a run or something in the morning. And then, I mean, I'm awake and it's mm -hmm. time to work. And I have my list and my list tells me what, I mean, it just tells me what to do. It's like my little boss. <laughs> yeah, hey whatever works so it's only dumb if it doesn't get you working right so uh when you prototype things do you typically order everything yourself i do if you're if you're so okay so you don't use like the uh purchasing departments or you know internal part lists of a of the client no if i'm making i mean i have made one product and i'm about for somebody and i'm probably going to do another one. Something like that, I'll use the DigiKey. Um, they have a, you can just basically put everything on one list. And then mm -hmm. if you want to make five, you just multiply all the parts by five or whatever. So I have a spreadsheet and I'll just use DigiKey for everything. I mean, that's an, uh, an easy way for me to keep track of what yeah. I'm ordering. But no, I don't use purchasing departments. And that's a pretty good hint that you're you're doing some sort of electrical work, but could give us a little more idea of what kind of uh, electrical engineering design work you do? Sure. I'm very much of a generalist, actually. I design, my, my favorite thing to do is to, to design electronics, PCBs, and do the circuit design. I typically, in this area that I live in, I get hired to do industrial machines, Mm -hmm. So that's big stuff, breakers and, you know, that, that emergency more switches. Yeah. more electrical than it is electronic. Right. It, it's not as challenging either. <laughs> well, I don't know. But sometimes you... it pays a lot better. And writing PLC software is in demand in this area. And I, I guess I, I think that would be... A, a good thing anyone who wants to get out on their own is, you know, you have to look at the area that you live in and see mm -hmm. what what kind of jobs are available in that area. It doesn't do me any good to say I want to stay in upstate New York and I only want to design electronics because there's just not enough work here. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Are you partial to a particular vendor of PLC? Are you, are you a Siemens or an Allen Bradley person? Siemens. Uh, Although I'm not, I'm kind of agnostic about the whole thing. I mean, everything to me is like chips and wires. So I would learn Alan Bradley. It's just, it's very expensive to just yeah. buy one and learn it. Sophie, can you talk a little bit about the importance of being close to your clients? You talk about, you know, the work that's in your area. It's not like you couldn't work for somebody that was 
you know, three time zones away. But obviously, uh, there's a reason you work with companies that are located somewhat geographically close to yourself. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be having a personal relationship with your project, like, I mean, a, a physical relationship, like you're going in to test thing or work with users or work with sales to define what you want. You want to get buy-in from everybody too. I think having FaceTime is really, really important. Mm-hmm. I, I know that a lot of people do work online and there's all these new websites that are popping up for people to bid on jobs online. Um, I, I like to be geographically close <laughs> to the people that I work with. <laughs> Right. Have you tried any of those on sites, the the gurus and Elance and all those? Elance seems um, like I wouldn't win any jobs. <laughs> um, I, they, when I've looked, they all seem like unless you're willing to bid four dollars an hour, you you're not going to win any jobs. Yeah, that's right. I, I did see another site recently, and I, I maybe I'll I'll write in the comments after we get off what it is, where you can because I don't remember the name of it. Something called flex jobs or something like this, and I think you, I've heard about this one. Yeah, and you, you as the person who wants to get hired, you pay a fee, and they connect you with these professional, flexible consulting jobs. And it is, it is actually flexjobs.com. Okay. So it says here, find telecommuting jobs and other great flexible jobs, such as part-time jobs and freelance work. And they do have quite a bit of engineering work, although most of it seems to be in the computer. <laughs> right. Well, so- software is great because software, you know, you can you can uh, send that around the world without too much difficulty. It also pays better than being an electrical engineer. <laughs> that it does. Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've actually considered, or more than considered, I think, um, with the, the downtime that I'm about to get, I'm probably going to refresh all my coding skills. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about, without telling us exact numbers, how you came about deciding how much you wanted to charge? Because when you go out on your own and you go, okay, I can pick a number between zero and $4,000 an hour. Zero's, <laughs> I'm not going to survive. $4,000 an hour, no one's going to hire me how you pick that sweet spot because that is kind of an adventure. And I think a lot of first time, uh, entrepreneurs, well, uh, consultants pick a number that's too low. And, uh, and so they get lots of work, but, uh, they, they have trouble maintaining profitability. There's a couple of people that have published their numbers. Um, Mm -hmm. Dave Young, who blogs for the element 14, I think. He's an electrical engineer out of Denver, and he's one of the co-founders of Blue Stamp Engineering, which is a, a day camp, an engineering day camp, summer day camp for kids. He, he published an article a long time ago that said it was about $80 an hour. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, that's a good number. Um, and Ben Heck is another person. I mean, he's a very famous person, but mm-hmm. he publishes something, I think he says 115 or somewhere in there. So well, well, and, and but that's going to vary by region. You know, if if you're if you're living in um, Silicon Valley, you're charging a different rate than if you're living in the middle of Iowa. Yeah, of course. So my my first client, they I told them I wanted seventy five dollars an hour. They got me down to fifty. Second client needed me better. Needed me more. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah. I've always heard you since basically, even though you think you can work, you know, two thousand hours a year. In reality, if you're on your own, you're only going to be able to bill for about half that. So pick whatever salary you want and uh, bill that on an hourly basis. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think if you're going to be a $100 an hour consultant, then you're probably not going to be able to charge for every hour. But if you're going to be a 65 or $75 an hour consultant, then you are. You're going to be able to charge for every meeting, every, you know, every every runaround every time someone makes you go to the hardware store because they forgot to buy parts for you or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, seriously, that is like valuable time. It, oh yeah, it, definitely. And there's something about training your clients to respect your time as well. Yeah. I think that's very important because they will, in many cases, they will not on themselves recognize that. Or in some cases that's, 
that's how they got ahead in their business is getting other people to do work for free. Exactly. And and sometimes it's not as as evil as that even sounds. Like I I found a really good workaround is like if you want to pay me to go run errands, that's fine. But I see this other person who's you know getting paid say fifteen dollars an hour, who is your employee. You right. should send that person to go do the errands, and that usually you know just is common sense. Mm-hmm. Especially once I make it clear that I'm going to charge them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, how much of uh, how much do you have to allocate for capital equipment? Like, uh, do you use only open source tools? Do you you know have a nice oscilloscope? Uh, the oscilloscope. I had a really nice oscilloscope. Lacroix lent me a sil- an oscilloscope for a whole year, but they took Ooh. it back. So. <laughs> <laughs> I have an oscilloscope, um, just a two-channel oscilloscope. But I have no, I have two two-channel oscilloscopes. And I have the, the regular stuff, soldering iron and bench supply and all that kind of stuff. Um, I use the Eagle software, and I pay mm. for a license. So they have a hundred-dollar license that allows that makes it legal for you to use it to make money, which is mm-hmm. pretty great. I'm thinking about upgrading. At, you know, it's like on my wish list. <laughs> <laughs> to a different brand or a uh, better license? A better license. I, I really like Eagle. I've, I've tried the free KiCad or KiCad, however you say it. And that's all right as well. But It's okay. It, yeah, it's okay. So, and at the moment, I, I do really like Eagle. I have noticed, though, as far as consulting work, a lot of people want you to have cadence experience. Really? Like uh, Allegro or the ORCAD capture and all that stuff? I've seen all those words. <laughs> um, I've used ORCAD um, a long time ago. Is I, I think cadence uh, has wrappered all of it under uh, Allegro, I could be wrong about that. Uh, it goes one way or another. Yeah, we use it at work, and we have the cadence in the ORCAD or the cadence in the Allegro, and it all installs in the same folder. When I used it, I thought it all opened up under one program, but that's an expensive piece of software. How much is it? Uh, I'm not sure. I've never had to look into it myself. Thankfully, more than a hundred dollars, I'm sure. Right. No, I think it's it's a several thousand dollar seat. I think I I. I I only time I used it was, you know, at a hypermecha global corp kind of a place where you have 20 licenses on the network. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be great if they had a, you know, a $500 license, like a light license, like AutoCAD light. They started doing that to try to bring people in. I love AutoCAD. <laughs> so if you, if you find yourself needing some specialty piece of software, does uh, the company you work for usually let you, you know, like maybe remote into one of their systems or? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. cool. Yeah. And, and I suppose as time goes on, I, I guess it would just depend like what a company would require. I, I wouldn't be able to, I don't have, you know, the financial backing to just lay out $7,000 to buy cadence, but I, I could also see making a deal with the company that, you know, I would do a project for some period of time if they bought it for me. Mm-hmm. In terms of deliverables, uh, what kind of documentation is, is, is typical? If it's a project type work, do you think it's more detailed or less detailed than what you saw in industry where you were going to be around to answer all the questions? I'm, I'm a pretty like thorough documenter. So mm-hmm. I, I just give them what I would give them. Okay. Yeah. It, it, and it's a lot, a lot of documentation. <laughs> <laughs> and if you had to worry at all about just the size of the, of the deliverable, when I was doing custom machinery, you know, when I started out, there were machines that were worth Thirty to fifty thousand dollars, and all of a sudden, I was on the hook for delivering these things, and and it it grew to be you know bigger contracts that we we're getting up into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it was starting to make me very nervous to be a one man band trying to uh, to be responsible for delivering that big a, a contract. 
I would be nervous too. <laughs> I would be petrified, actually. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I I often wonder if at some point I'll have a, enough work that I would attract someone to come and work with me. You know, and then I could split the risk. Right. Are Are you able to outsource work to other people? I mean, do you have colleagues or from you know previous jobs? Do you know people that you can sort of uh, send stuff out to if you get overloaded? I, I do, but it, I haven't gotten overloaded yet. <laughs> well, that's because you have the to do list every morning. You know exactly <laughs> what you need to get done. I mean, I just I don't have enough work that I could give give it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Not not yet, anyway. So, on your uh, Super Green Dot blog, you've talked with other people that have gone out on their own. How did their experiences compare with your own? Did Did you learn anything that was surprising about how how other people went out on their own? I, I think the most surprising thing for me was that most people did not have a trust fund. Right. I, I mean, that was I, I used to be in jobs and be so like yearning to work for myself. And I thought, wow, that person just did it. Their parents must have given them a bunch of money or, you know, I would just try to figure out how could they just leave their job and do it. Right. And it's really as simple as just doing it. I agree, but there is some value in having at least a few dollars. Like I said, I, I went without a salary for 18 months when I went out on my own. And that was part of it was I had not a customer to my name. I really wasn't prepared. I said, I'm going to quit. Now I got to go find a customer. That takes a while, mm-hmm. and then you've got to, you know, now you've got to pay. For, in my case, I was uh, working out of an office because I had I had I hadn't thought about it that I could work out of my home. So I'm working out of an office. I'm having to pay for uh, computer stuff. I'm having to pay for software. Uh, I'm having to pay for business cards. I'm having to travel to interview people, paying postage, and all that stuff adds up. And, mm-hmm. and what little I had coming in. It was all gone. Now, after you know, after a while, it started to come in. But, but I do think that people go on, people who are going out on their own do need to think about, you know, how are the bills going to get paid in the uh, in the meantime. The, the number I heard the most was forty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. That was the number that most people seemed to have before they went out on their own. When I, I didn't have that much when I went to being a sales engineer, mm-hmm. but. That seems like a good amount of money because you have a year. Yeah, I hear that you need at least at least six months of living expenses. Whatever you know, if you're living in a hut and you're mm-hmm. you're happy on beans and rice, then perhaps you can survive on less. But you know, whatever your living style is, you need to be able to cover at least six months. There's a lot of beans and rice in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, my husband's a freelancer, also. Okay. Ooh. So yeah, he's been in business for twelve years. Very good. Well, so he, so he has some idea of exactly what you're going through. Yeah. He, he was very excited for me to stop having a job and stop whining all the time about being <laughs> bored. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of freelancing does your husband do? He's a mechanical fabricator and designer. Oh, okay. So we have cool. some CNCs and that sort of thing. You have CNC stuff too? Oh, yeah. I'm jealous. <laughs> Nice. So, so without uh, you know stepping into the political minefield that is health insurance, um, in your experience and the people you've interviewed on Super Green Dot, uh, what do you guys plan or what do you guys end up doing with that? Do you just go without it, or do you have a spouse with it? Um, we, um, Oliver, my husband, and I, we pay for health insurance. Mm-hmm. Is that typical, or do a lot of people go without? seems like a lot of people go without and a lot of people that I didn't interview go without. And I have to say, I don't completely understand that decision because even I have a very high deductible insurance, but it works out to about $3,400 a year. Which could easily cover at least, you know, (laughs) a a trip to the emergency room or two. I mean, I I guess I think $3,400 a year. If I mean, let's just, say my field to be an electrical engineer, like that isn't, it's not enough to make me stay in a job mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be enough to make me not pay for it either. 
Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, but I, you know, different fields and different people are in different places in their business and people who have families pay a lot more for health insurance. I mean, just for myself, Oliver and I pay about $7,000 a year or $8,000 a year together. Ouch. If you're a little older and have pre-existing conditions, that goes much higher too. So right. it's much easier if you're in, in, you're in good health. It's a, it's a much easier way to go. Right. And in New York state, they can't do anything for pre-existing conditions. There's some law here where it can't be... Well, actually, maybe that's not true. They, they have to accept you with pre-existing conditions, but they can probably charge you a lot more. Well, yeah, so so at this point, nobody knows how the new health care is going to iron out. You know, I, So, you know, we'll know in a year and a half how it turns out, but I think we're all kind of waiting around to mm-hmm. find out exactly how this works and, and what we're all going to pay. I, I would like to see health insurance not be tied to a job. And I think we can all agree that, you know, as you get older and stop working, that is exactly when you need health insurance. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that there are so many people who feel stuck in their jobs who might be pursuing something else because of their health insurance. I, mm-hmm. I would just like to see it like as our culture or just as a nation, what we do is we pay for it in a different way than being attached to the job. It also seems a little bit unfair. Like engineering jobs typically have it, but a lot of jobs don't. Yeah. It's not a universal benefit by any means. Yeah. And the whole bit of employer paid healthcare got started as sort of a a side effect of a a tax loophole that got passed back in the, I can't remember late forties, early fifties, you know, before then there wasn't such a thing, but uh, because of the tax loophole companies discovered that they could get a tax write off for, Offering healthcare to their employees, and we started down this line of uh, the employer providing the healthcare benefits. Oh, is that how it got started? Yep. So, so Sophie, I wanted to ask you too. Chris Gamble and I had had several times in the early days of this uh, podcast conversations about engineering work becoming more freelance. You know, everything mm-hmm. was going to become more short term. That there wasn't going to be a need for engineers to have thirty-year careers anymore. Since you've interviewed a lot of people, uh, is that is that what you're hearing? Is that what you're seeing? Are we are we headed in that direction? Certainly more than we were ten years ago. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I think, but I think it's going to be slow. Okay. I mean, change is always slow. Right. Um, right, and, and and certainly businesses that have very specialized methods or equipment. Aren't, aren't going to be replacing engineers who don't understand their lingo and their, their methods yeah. know, quickly. If you're, if you're a C programmer, you can pretty much plug in pretty quickly and, and get up to speed. But if you're doing um, some exotic manufacturing method, it's a little harder to, re- to replace you. Uh, yeah, and even if you're building equipment that uses specialized detectors or specialized software, specialized calculations, mm-hmm. you, you're you're going to stay. I mean, that company is going to want to keep you. Right. Uh, And I don't see that changing ever because it wouldn't make financial sense to just grab a new person and every single time make them learn new math. Yeah. That's not very economical in the long term. This is not a world that may often make sense though. Uh, One, one thing that I see um, as being just sort of unfortunate is at some of the companies there's, people who don't have don't seem to have enough to do so they're doing like busy work you've got very talented smart people you know organizing part numbers something like this i don't know if you guys have seen this at all i've seen that where uh, a company might say uh, we could open a we can open a requisition and hire an engineer when we might need a tech writer or something else because, hey, we can get another engineer and maybe someday we'll use them for engineering. Right. I did a, I did a co-op where the, the quote-unquote technicians were just people who could say electronic words. And, yeah, they were like old cell phone salesmen and stuff. And it was, it was pretty bad. I don't know. I've worked with a lot of engineers that were not, you know, really engineers, too. So, Sophie, when you talk about engineers being underutilized, is it your frustra- is your frustration with the with the employers, or is your frustration with the engineers who are allowing themselves to be underutilized? 
uh, probably more with the engineers that are allowing themselves to be underutilized. And so your your philosophy is don't put up with this anymore. My my philosophy is unrealistic. You know, I just think, well, if you're bored, leave. There's lots of right. people that will hire you, which is right. which is factual. In my area, for certain fields, that is factual. But you know, I mean, people don't want to just walk away from a job that they've been comfortable in for 15 years. Right. And so let me back up just so you've been out of school since 2006. So that's roughly seven years. Yeah. And so what was, I, I'm always curious about the, the early experience. You've come out with an engineering degree and did you have, did you have experience at that point, which made it very easy to find a job or did, did you struggle getting that experience? Cause it always seems like it's getting that first job and getting the experience is the tough thing for, uh, for young engineers. Actually, I've been working in engineering since 2000. So, okay. um, so I've had experience. Um, basically, I was living in New York City, and I was going to move out of the city where there was not going to be any work, and I needed to get a job. So I called a temp agency and asked them what I should learn how to do if I wanted to get a job. And they told me, AutoCAD, we have nobody who can do that, and we'll pay $17 an hour. Okay. So... <laughs> That's what I did. And then I got a job <laughs> at a civil engineering firm and started taking classes, and that was it. Okay. Hmm. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, that when I sit down to AutoCAD, I can't remember how to do anything. But if I just stare at this screen, then my fingers start moving in their proper location. Do you have that same? <sighs> I don't know. I don't really think about it much. <laughs> I, haven't, I actually haven't used AutoCAD in a long time. But... <laughs> Generally, with software, I just use it. Right, right. Well, there, there, I mean, you can do it. You can do everything as with most programs from the from the uh, pull down menus. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're all the the uh, keyboard shortcuts, and I can never remember what they are. But if I'll just quit thinking about it and look at the <laughs> look at the screen, then my fingers start moving in the correct direction. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah, still doing that. Autocad's really good with that. They have a lot of keyboard shortcuts. Right. No, actually, I would probably go. Google it and print out a cheat sheet and tape it to my computer. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that, but I just had my laptop refreshed at work. And for uh, Cadence, it reset all my keyboard shortcuts. I changed them to what made sense to me. And now I can't remember how I went about changing them back. So when I'm trying to do something in it, I'm just hitting all the wrong buttons. And it takes twice as long right now. Uh, oh, it's the worst. So you use Cadence. Yes, that's what we use at work. Okay. I wonder if that's um, like it's a semiconductor thing. Uh, it could be. It's definitely what we use to design our ICs, but that's a whole different cadence suite. That's not. Uh, I don't have that on my computer. I, I think it's pretty uh, common in the ASIC industry. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's like cadence and mentor graphics are the two big ones I know for yeah. IC design. I've used Mentor, but not for IC design, just for schematics and PCB layout. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic at that. I've recently switched to Altium, and I think it's the best PCB software I've ever used. I know that that is a controversial statement. Yeah, I'm sure. Everybody has their ones that they like. Yeah, I used LTM briefly on a co-op, but I never really did anything big in it. It was more like just pulling it up to view other engineers' boards to figure out where a certain resistor was. So, um, Jeff, I was, I was just going to go back to your question about getting out of school and sure. um, finding work. Just in general, because I've heard you talk about this, this subject, you know, we, we talk about it as engineers a lot. I, I think that when you're, like, when you don't have the ability to command a large salary, mm -hmm. um, that's a really good time to be, like, getting a job doing anything that you want. I mean, a lot of companies are like, wow, cool. We got a cheap, smart person. <laughs> so when you say anything you want, or you mean you should take any job that gives you experience, or you should look for a job that only you should specifically be looking for exactly what you want to do and don't care what they're paying you. Um, I think, I think you have to be paid fairly, like what everybody else is, you know, everybody's getting paid in internships. Right. 
But I think the experience is a lot more valuable because it's true. People will not hire you if you have no experience. And I don't think that a company that cares about which software exactly that you use, I mean, that's a, an HR thing. The hiring manager isn't going to care. But it is important that, you know, you just go to a company and be like, okay, I'm going to be your drafter or I'm going to be your PCB layout go-to person and right. go do that for a summer, even though, you know, maybe that's not what you want to do. Right. And speaking of that, I'm still wondering how you got from AutoCAD, which is not exactly PCB layout no. uh, software, into doing electronic design. I wanted to go to school at um, SUNY New Paltz. Okay. Um, for a variety of reasons, but I'd already gotten a degree from there, so it was going to take me the least amount of time. That was a <laughs> big one. Um, so they only have electrical and computer engineering. So when you started, when you called the temp agency and they said AutoCAD, was this before or after you decided you're going back to school to, to study electrical engineering? It was before, but I knew that I was going to be going back to school for something science. Okay. And I, I didn't know what there was really, you know, I just thought I'd go and explore stuff. So I started by taking math classes and then physics classes and and so did you think you knew that engineering was definitely what you wanted to do, or it was just something more technical, more science-like? I, I had no idea that I would like <laughs> working in engineering. I mean, prior to that, I had been an artist. I was a sculptor, so I'd always worked in art studios. So going to work in a civil engineering office was a very strange environment. And within about a week, I was like, wow, I really fit in really well here. Everyone here is, like, really dorky. Like, it was okay. like, <laughs> kind of odd. Like, I was like, wow, I'm in this whole environment where everybody's kind of like me. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Neat. Okay, so I, just last week I did a uh, – with Big Beak, and they they have a Twitter chat every Wednesday night, and I uh, was on that. And we talked about engineers and artists, and I was claiming that engineers should be more like artists. We've got a lot to learn from artists. So as a former artist – do I is this at all right? Is there anything that engineers should learn from artists? I think that in some ways the thought patterns are very similar. Right? I mean an engineer is dreaming up something and hopefully an engineer has some like technical restraint. Mm -hmm. Um it's the same thing if you're an artist. I I don't know if being a painter is really the same thing, but doing large sculptures or Right. Installations certainly is the same thing. Well, at some point you've got to deliver something, though. You know, even a painter has to put, you know, paint on canvas. They have to deliver a physical good to somebody the same way an engineer has to, one would think, deliver some op mm -hmm. you know, working machine or board or something. And so, again, I think of the creative process. You have to imagine what could be, but you're limited by, you know, constraints. The painter has you know, what kind of paint, what kind of brushes, and what kind of canvas, they have to work within the constraints of that form of art, uh, the same way engineers have to work in within constraints of budget and material and safety, those kind of things. Yeah. When I switched over, I mean, I still do a lot of installation artwork, but I thought it was the same thought processes. Okay. And, and so, so give me an idea. What's the biggest sculpture you've worked on? I think it's on my website. I made this 10-foot diameter birthday cake in the late 90s. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a fake cake. Um, it's made out of wood and foam, and it got mounted on a beach on Fire Island. It's like 10 feet up. 15 feet up in the air. I'm sorry. So pieces of it were put on a big crane, and I'm standing on this pedestal. I'm the only one who can fit on this pedestal. I mean, there, two people couldn't get up there with the cake. Right. And that was really scary. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the picture you have on the website. That does look pretty narrow up there. Yeah. Surrounded by nearly 3,000 naked men. 30,000. 30,000. Oh, Mr. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, a big rage. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I got to learn a lot about weather. And size and how you get something out of a small New York City studio. 
and into a truck. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I, I worked for this artist in um, Houston Street who makes really big sculptures, and we had to put the stuff out of the second floor window on a crane. Everything had to be designed to come apart. And I'm still in the habit of doing that. Everything that I make gets shipped, so it all gets designed to come apart. Cool. Well, I see that uh, we've rolled once again past the uh, the hour mark, as we always do, so we should probably uh, think about bringing this uh, this episode to a conclusion. Ah, you don't need your In-N-Out burger, Jeff. Let's go for two hours. Well, I do. Ha- I do have a roommate here who is uh, who is patiently waiting for me to finish up with this podcast so we can go get dinner. And he said that I have to have an In-N-Out burger. All right, fair All right. enough. Get the uh, get the bun toasted with the extra mustard. I think they mustard toast it. I believe it's awesome. I don't know, but I'm looking forward to finding out. Yeah, well, if you if you got your laptop out, just Google the In-N-Out secret menu and <laughs> you know go to yes. town. Order like a local. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Sophie, thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate you uh, giving us a night of your time. Thanks for having me. No problem. Is the bill in the mail? (laughs) 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 Yes. Thank you so much, Sophie. We really appreciate it. All right. Talk to you all soon. Good night. Bye now. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced by Analog Life, LLC, and Engineering Revision. Theme music by Paul Stevenson. For more info, visit theengineeringcommons.com. <laughs>